experience the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit on that remain. Today, through the grace of God, we will speak about chapter 15 from the first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians. And this chapter is one of the most important chapters because deals with the resurrection of the dead. Because there were teachers at the church of Corinth claiming that there is no resurrection for the dead. Yes, they believed the resurrection of Christ, but they were against the resurrection of the dead. That's why St. Paul answers these false teachers by reminding them of the gospel of resurrection which they received and they believed in. This from verse 1 to verse 11. From 1 to 11, St. Paul reminded them with the gospel of resurrection. Then actually, he supported and defended the resurrection of the dead with several different lines of argumentation. He made a very, very strong argument to prove and to support that the dead will be risen in the last day in the second coming of Christ. Then actually, he answered another question. How the dead will be raised? And how their body will look like after the resurrection? Are they going to be raised with the same physical body or which body? And this he will answer from verse 75 to 50. So let's read verse by verse and uh, reflect on. Verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you receive, and in which you stand. As I told you, there were some false teachers proclaiming that the resurrection is just the resurrection of the soul from sin to new life. When we repent, that's the resurrection. But there is no resurrection for our bodies. When we die, the body will not be raised. So the resurrection after death is impossible for them. And as you know, Corinth is far from Greece. And if you read Acts chapter 17, verse 32, when St. Paul went to Athena Koras, they heard him, heard him all the time until he started to speak about the resurrection. Then they laughed at him and they left him until then we will get from you later on. And they left him. So the doctrine of the resurrection was very absurd according to the Greek ideas. That's why Corinth, which is part from Greece, you know, they did not accept the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. That's why 
if you read the epistle of Clement to the Corinthians, which is written in the beginning of the second century, uh, St. Clement referred to these free thinkers or false teachers who were against the resurrection of the dead. That's why St. Paul told them, Brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you. I want to remind you the basics of the gospel. The gospel which we preached to you was a gospel of resurrection. So, uh, he starts before he makes his argument about the resurrection of the dead. He starts by mentioning to them the basics of the gospel, the basic teaching of uh, this chapter. Uh, so, and we learn from St. Paul, if we want actually to discuss or be in dialogue with any other denomination, what is the common ground is the gospel. So the gospel should be the common ground. Especially the people in Korah, they believed the gospel, the gospel, they received it, and also they confessed. So today, if you want to hold dialogue with the Catholic or with the Protestant, what is the common ground should be the gospel? St. Paul wrote to the gospel I preached to you, which also you receive, and in which you stand. What does it mean, in which you stand? He wants to tell them, by this gospel you are saved. But this gospel actually, you stand today and you say you are Christian, because you believe in this gospel, the gospel of resurrection. This too. By which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believe in me. St. Paul is saying, you are saved if you believe in the word of God, in the gospel of resurrection. But if you forget the gospel of salvation and depart from it, then you are putting your salvation in a very, very high risk. And here, some Protestants preach, once you are saved, you are saved. But here some Paul told them, no. Yes, you are saved because you accept the gospel. If you hold fast that word, but if you do not hold fast that word, and you depart from this word and from this doctrine, then actually your salvation is in a high risk. Unless you believe in vain, what does it mean? If there is no resurrection, as the false teachers are teaching you, then your belief is in vain. And, and you will explain this later on, what does it mean? If I preach to you that Christ is risen and he will raise us, but this preaching is a lie, is false, then actually your faith is in vain. You believe something wrong, something false. Uh, verse 3. For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. So, St. Paul started by uh, reminding them with the facts that he mentioned to them. These doctrines, it is not uh, his imagination. He received this doctrine from God, and this doctrine was supported by the apostles. So what he preached to them is what he received. And another lesson for us, especially as Sunday school servants, when we preach, we should preach what we receive. We should not preach our own personal doctrine, but what we receive, that's what we should preach. And St. Paul actually mentioned three facts, three doctrines, that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose from the dead. And he said, according to the scripture, The doctrine of the death of Christ, you will find it in Isaiah chapter 53 from verse 1 to 12. So Isaiah actually prophesied about the death of Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself, in Luke chapter 22 verse 37, he called Isaiah about his death. So St. Paul is telling them, what I received by revelation, Concerning the death of Christ, also is supported by the scripture and also is confirmed by the apostles. So now there is no doubt. The scripture spoke about the death of Christ. The apostles confirmed the death of Christ. I received this by revelation as mentioned in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 12. Then verse 4. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scripture. As I told you, he mentioned three facts. He died, he was buried, he rose. I told you the reference of the scripture about his death was Isaiah. What what is the reference about his resurrection? Psalm 16, verse 10. Psalm 16. Verse 10, when he said, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption, and you will not leave my soul in his. And uh, this actually was supported in Acts chapter 13 and verse 35. So the resurrection of Christ was uh, mentioned in the Psalms, Psalm 16, verse 10. So again, three evidences here. Number one, the scripture. Number two, the apostles. Number three, the revelation to St. Paul himself. Verse five. And that was seen by Kephas, then by the twelve. Now St. Paul adding a false evidence about the resurrection of Christ. As I told you, the first evidence is the prophecy. Second evidence, what the apostle said. Third evidence uh, is the revelation that the four received. The fourth evidence is the eyewitnesses. And most of the eyewitnesses were alive when St. Paul wrote this letter. So we can go and check with them. Although the women saw Christ, 
before St. Peter. But when he mentioned that he was seen by Peter and he didn't mention anything about the women, I think St. Paul mentioned the witnesses who would carry most weight to the Christians, like the apostles. That's why he mentioned that St. Paul and St. Peter and the twelve. The appearance to Peter, you can read it in Luke chapter 24, verse 34. When the risen Christ appeared to Peter, it's mentioned in 24, 34. Then he was seen by the twelve. That his appearance to the twelve in Matthew 28, 15 and in John 20, verse 19 to 25. But here I want to mention something. Maybe some of you will argue, and they, they say, God did not appear to 12, that appeared to 11, because Judas died. Yes, he appeared to 11, but the group was called the 12. So when St. Paul said, appeared to the 12, he didn't mean 12 persons were in the upper room. Only 11 persons were in the upper room, because Judas uh, killed himself. But this group was called the group of the twelve. So there is no contradiction here in the scripture when he said that yeah, the Then he mentioned in verse uh, 6, after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the prison, but some have fallen asleep. Actually, if you read the, the four Gospels, you will not find any account of the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ to the five hundred. But St. Paul, because he knew it was not mentioned anywhere else, he told them most of them are still alive. He had some of them died, but most of them are still alive. So this story is not made by twelve, because how can you make 500 persons leave something? It's very, very difficult. Some commentators of the Bible said, when the Lord said, tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they shall see me. So they say God in Galilee appeared to these 500 persons. So they say this appearance might take place in Galilee, where Christ repeatedly directed the disciples to gather and to go there. And he say maybe the appearance of one who was mentioned in Matthew 28, verse 16, is the appearance of the 500, although the number 500 was not mentioned in Matthew. Uh, and definitely St. Paul met some of the 500 brethren. That's why he knew about this appearance from them. Uh, and and he, he affirmed that the greater part of these 500 were still alive when he wrote this thing. Verse 7, after that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. James is the Lord's brother, his cousin. James is a sinner, the, sorry, the lesser, not the greater. James the Greater is the son of Zebed, the brother of John. But this James here, whom we call the Lord's brother, or sometimes they call him James the Lesser, to differentiate him from James the Apostle or the Greater. 
James was the bishop of Jerusalem. That's why he was prominent. And uh, he presided on the first council in Jerusalem. Uh, you can read about this council in Acts chapter 15. And he is the author of the epistle of St. James. So that's why St. Paul mentioned him. He appealed to James. But James, the apostle, the son of Zebedee, the brother of St. John the Beloved, had been killed by Herod, as you read in Acts chapter 12, verse 3. Then he appeared, or he was seen by all the apostles. By all the apostles, the reference here in Luke chapter 24, verse 50. Uh, Luke 24, verse 50, that's before his ascension left. Verse 8. Then last of all, who was seen by me also. Last of all, who was seen by St. Paul himself. When the Lord appeared to St. Paul uh, on the road to Damascus. In Acts chapter 9, verse 4. And then St. Paul said about himself, uh, as by one born out of new time. He appeared to me as by one born out of new time. Why St. Paul considered himself as one born out of new time? Maybe because he did not believe in Christ while Christ was in, uh, living on earth. St. Paul actually believed in Christ after the ascension of Christ and after Christ appeared to him. Definitely St. Paul was living in Jerusalem during the life of Christ, but he did not believe in Christ. He was in fantasy. He was very, very uh, strict in his religion. Judaism, and he did not believe in Christ. That's why uh, when he said, how of your time, he said, it was much, much proper for me to believe in Christ like the rest of the apostles while he was here on earth. But because of my stubbornness and strictness of my faith, that's why I didn't believe to him except later on. Then he said, for I am the least of the apostles who am not who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. St. Paul never concerned himself to be worthy to be called an apostle. That's why all the time he mentioned that I am the least of the apostles. Or maybe I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. Not only the list of the apostles, but not worthy even to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. St. Paul never forgot that he persecuted the church of God. See in Acts chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. In Acts 22, verse 4. In Acts 26, verse 11. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 6. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. In all the circumstances, St. Paul mentioned that he persecuted the church of Christ. As David the prophet said, my sin before me all the time. So although St. Paul was accepted and forgiven, but he never forgot that he persecuted the church of Christ. But what's beautiful about St. Paul? This is half of the fact 
that he persecuted the church. But what is the other half? He said, there's ten, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. So he said, by the, yes, the first half I persecuted the church of God. But the second half, now I am an apostle. I am what I am, I am. But how I became an apostle, it's not by my human merits. It's not by my human worthiness, but it is by the grace of God. So the grace of God uh, enabled me to do more work even than the rest of the apostles. So if now I am preached, if now I'm apostle, if now I'm established in churches, it's not because I am good. It's because God is good and his grace upon us forever. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Why his grace toward him is not in vain? Because he labored more abundantly than the rest of the apostles. <laughs> so he said, I used the grace of God. I submit myself to the grace of God. That's why the grace of God became not vain in me, but abundant in me. And I labor more than the rest of the apostles. But St. Paul uh, confirmed again, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. So all this labor, all these activities, it's not my own activities, but the grace of God uh, which was St. Paul yielded completely to the word of grace in him. Thus, every Christian should do. Actually, if you yield and submit to the word of grace in your life and the word of the Holy Spirit in your life, you will do greater work. As the Lord said, you will do works greater than what I did. Because it's not us, but the grace of God working in us. Verse 11, therefore, whether it, it was our or they, so we preach and so you believe. So St. Paul said, me and the apostles, all of us, preach the same gospel, the gospel of resurrection, the gospel of the risen Lord. And you accept it when you believe. You accepted the doctrine of resurrection when you believe. And your faith was built on resurrection. So now, while you are following, you know, false teachers teaching you uh, that there is no resurrection for you. After he reminded them with the foundation, the resurrection of Christ, now from verse 12, he will start his argument about the resurrection of the dead. And it's a very, very difficult argument. As I told you, the false teachers believed in the resurrection of Christ, but they denied the resurrection of the dead. Yes, Christ rose from the dead, but our life will end by our death. So there is no resurrection for them. No, they don't. They believe Yes. Yes, they believe that God is dead our life. That's why it's important, as you said, to uh, have hope in Christ here on earth are the most miserable among all men. So there's no resurrection. There's nothing after our uh, verse 18, uh, verse 20, sorry. 
Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So, St. Paul said, if Christ is risen, then the general resurrection must follow the resurrection of Christ as a result. Because what Christ accomplished it, Christ himself is immortal. Christ himself is immortal. The only reason why he died and he rose in order to abolish the power of death, so we will be raised. If there is no resurrection, then Christ didn't have to die and didn't have to rise because he's immortal. So, St. Paul is saying, if you believe in the resurrection of Christ, then the implication of this that all of us will be raised. If there is a resurrection, resurrection of Christ, the general resurrection must follow as a result. Verse 15. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. So he said the opposite is true. If Christ is risen, then all of us will be raised. But if there is no resurrection, then Christ is not Christ. Then what we preach to you is false. So if persons once died cannot be raised, as these false teachers say, then Christ could not have risen. Verse 14. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. In that case, if there is no resurrection from the dead, which means Christ is not risen, then what we preach to you is false. And also what you believe in it is false. The new faith is vain. Not only that, but we are false witnesses. As he said in verse 14, in the verse 15, yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that we have raised up Christ whom he did not raise up. Uh, if in fact the dead did not rise. So as if we say, not only uh, your faith is empty, our preaching is empty, but we are considered as false witnesses of God. And definitely, this was one of the Ten Commandments. So St. Paul is saying, actually you are accusing all the apostles, all the believers as false witnesses if you preach that there is no resurrection of the dead. Because in this case, we have declared that God did what we never did do. We declare that God raised Christ, although Christ, uh, God never raised Christ, the Father never raised the Son. And by the way, there are many verses about resurrection. It says that the Father raised the Son, or the Son rose by himself, or the Holy Spirit raised the Son. So the resurrection was the work of the Holy Spirit. So some verses you will find, Father raised the Son, or the Holy Spirit raised the Son, or the Son rose by Himself. You will find these three types of verses. Verse 16. For if the dead 
do not rise, then Christ is not risen. Again, he is confirming that the implication of his teaching that the dead did not rise or do not rise means you deny also the resurrection of Christ. So he's telling then you have to consistency here. If you believe that Christ is risen and the dead will not be risen, then these two beliefs are contradicting each other. Either to believe that Christ is not risen and there is no resurrection, or if you believe that Christ is risen, then there is resurrection of the dead. Very simple. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your cities. He said there is more serious implication if Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, then Christ is not the Savior. He is just a dead man. He died and that's it. Who could never even save himself. He did not abolish the power of death. He died like everybody. So he's not the Savior. So if Christ is just a dead man, has no power to uh, rise from the dead, then he will not pardon your sins. You are still in your sins. So you are not forgiven. You are not saved. You are still in your sins and your faith is in vain. This is. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Thus all Christians who die in Christ has fallen into eternity. Perished at the end, nothing after us. Which means we have hope only in Christ in earth. If there is no resurrection, then our hope in Christ is only in this life. Because after we die, there is nothing. But Samuel said in verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most believable. So, if Christ is not Christ, there is no hope of immortality. There is no hope of eternal life. There is no hope of immortality. If there is no life beyond death, then no hope, and there is no hope of life after death, then Christian, who deny themselves here and carry the cross and endure suffering and endure persecution for the sake of Christ are the most miserable. Because we endure a lot of suffering here, we endure a lot of persecution here, and then after that there is nothing. Then yes, indeed we are the most miserable. Everybody will pity us who are the most pitiful. Because they lose their life here on earth in asceticism and enduring persecution and accepting suffering from Christ and gain no eternal life. So, uh, Christ, as if Christ destroyed us completely, instead of He saved us, He destroyed us. Because here on earth, we endure a lot of suffering and afterwards there is nothing. So St. Paul here ended the argument about the consequences of this false belief if the dead will not be risen. From verse uh, 20 to verse 28, 
Sarpul spoke about this as our enemy. Actually, Sarpul said he is the last enemy to be destroyed. The last enemy to be destroyed. Verse 22. But now Christ is risen from the dead. When he said now means the resurrection of Christ is certain. It's a fact. It is true. There is no doubt about it. Even you believe the false teachers, even you believe in the resurrection of Christ. So if you believe in the resurrection of Christ, then the dead will be risen. Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruit of those who are falling asleep. Uh, Christ is risen, St. Paul has seen the Lord, there are many uh, credible eyewitnesses. And as I told you, if Christ is risen, then the resurrection of the, uh, of the people must come. But St. Paul used a term here about Christ, he is the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. Uh, if you read in Leviticus chapter 23, from verse 10 to 16, you will find there is a beautiful ritual done after the feast of Passover. I want you to understand this ritual. It's, it's beautiful. On the, on the morrow, after the first Sabbath of the Passover, so here is the Passover, if today is Passover, then the first Sabbath is the Saturday after the Passover. On the morning of this Saturday, on this Sunday, the next day of Saturday, a sheet of the first fruit of barley harvest was waved before the Lord. They break the first fruit of the, of the barley and they waved it before the Lord. Why? As a pledge, now we brought the first fruit, so we will bring the, the rest of the harvest. St. Paul has this in his mind. So he said, after the Passover, the first Saturday is Bright Saturday. And on the morning of Bright Saturday is the Sunday of Resurrection. So on the Sunday of Resurrection, Christ rose. Christ is the first fruit that was waved before God as pledge that the rest of the harvest will come. The rest of the Christian will be risen as Christ rose from the dead. So here house of Paul is used the word first fruit. So on the morning after the first Sabbath of the Passover, Christ the first fruit arose and appeared living. The first fruit of the great harvest of souls gathered into eternal life. So here how we use the word first fruit. Verse 21. For since by man came death, man here is the first man, is Adam. Adam said, and the witch of sin is death. So after the sin of Adam, death came upon his race, whose children, because in him, in Adam, all have sinned. In Adam, all of us sinned. So all of us became under the sentence of death. As we say, the divine leadership, this entered in the world through the enemy of Satan. By man, by Adam, came death. By man also came the resurrection of the dead. So, by first Adam, death came upon us. By Christ, 
the second Adam, the son of man, came the resurrection. As all of us died in Adam, in Christ, all of us will be blessed. Verse 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. All there is in Adam became subject to death. In Christ all race will be raised from the dead. And here when I say all, the righteous and the wicked, everybody will be risen, not only the righteous. That's why he said all, to appear before the, the, the judgment. And actually, you can read about the resurrection of everybody in John chapter 5. When the Lord said, the hour is come in which all those in grave will hear the sound of the voice of the Son of God. Those who did righteous things will be risen into the resurrection of life. And those who are wicked will be risen into the resurrection of damnation. So everybody will be risen. So the passage does not affirm the final salvation of all when he said all will be risen. But affirm that the final resurrection of all. So the general resurrection is for everybody, the righteous and the wicked. That's why he said in Christ all will be risen, all shall be made alive. Verse 23. But each one needs order. There is order. Christ, there is the truth. After all, those who are Christ at his coming. So, uh, every man in his rank, his division. The first one is Christ. He rose 2,000 years ago. Then, the righteous will receive the wicked in the resurrection. So, after Christ, he rose 2,000 years ago, in the second coming of Christ, first the righteous will be risen. And after the resurrection of the righteous, the wicked will be risen into the resurrection of the nation, as clear in John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. Uh, verse 24. Then comes the end, when he delivered the kingdom without the power, when he puts okay, I want to explain to you this. Christ's kingdom is started on the day of his restriction. The Lord reigned on a moment. So now we are living in the millennium. The millennium means the kingdom of Christ. And in Colossians chapter 1, we read that God transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of His love. So we are already living in the kingdom of Christ. That's why we say our Savior, Lord, and King of us all. But in, in, uh, in the Lord's prayer, they, we say the kingdom come. So we are speaking about another kingdom come. The Lord's prayer is directed toward the Father, not the Son. So there is the kingdom of the Son, and there is the kingdom of that Father. Now we are living in the kingdom of the Son. Then, at the end of the world, 
The son will deliver the kingdom to the father. That's what we say in the kingdom come. When the son delivers the kingdom to the father. That's what he mentioned here. Then comes the end. When he delivers, when he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the father. So when Christ's work is accomplished, when everybody is saved, and everybody will live with him, and he abolished the power of death, he conquered death completely by the general resurrection, then he places all in the Father's hand. The kingdom of the Father is done. So Christ is reigning now, and will continue to reign until the Father conquers all Christ's enemies under this this is again this then comes the end when he Christ delivered the kingdom to God the Father when he the Father puts an end to all rule and all authority and power so when Christ when the Father puts an end to all rule all authority all power and make everything under the feet of Christ, then Christ will deliver the kingdom to God the Father. Uh, and this will be the general resurrection, because it's the general resurrection. No authority for God to stand, no ruling for God, no ruling for God, no power. Christ will be all Verse 25. For he, Christ, must reign till he, the Father, has put all enemies under his feet, under the Son. Uh, I want to make sure when he said he, there are some, he is referring to the Father and he is referring to the Son. So in order not to be confused, when I say the word he, I say the Father of the Son. Again, I will read it together to make sure you understand. He delivered the he Christ delivered the kingdom to God the Father. When he, the Father, puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he, Christ, must reign till he, the Father, has put all enemies under his feet, under the feet of Christ. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So all enemies will be put under the sun, the sun's feet. All the wicked opponents, human and supernatural, human and Satan is all his powers. Sin, death must be overthrown, must come under the feet of the sun. And the last enemy will be destroyed with death. When the resurrection of everybody. The general resurrection in this is destroyed. Verse uh, 27 For me, Christ, the Father, has put all things under his feet, under the Son. Uh, this from Psalm chapter 8, verse 6. The Father put everything under the feet of the Son. A statement that Christ is, uh, is the Lord of all and that God the Father has subjected all to the Son, to Christ. So the order of the closing event 
the order of those events of the world. Number one is the resurrection of the righteous. Then the resurrection of the wicked. Then the judgment. Then casting death and Hades into the lake of fire. Then delivering the kingdom of the Father. And the son of the king of the father's king. Verse 27. For he, the father, has put all things under his feet, under the son's feet. But when he says, all things are put under him, all things, all, put under Christ, does the word all include the father? Of course not. So when we say the father put all things under the son's feet, the word all does not include the father. That's what St. Paul is trying to say here. Let somebody say that uh, all, because he said the word all, all includes the father. That's why St. Paul said, when he says, when God said, all things are put under him, under Christ, it is evident that he, the father, who put all things under him, under the son, is accepted. Not so the word all here does not include the Father. God gave Christ the power. And that's why God the Father is accepted. He's not included in the word all. The Father is not subject to the Son. Because the Son came from the Father, is born from the Father, is begotten from the Father, not opposite. That's why the Son. The Father is not subject to the Son, but the Son is subject to the Father. Verse uh, 28. Now when all things are made subject to Him, to the Son, then the Son Himself will also be subject to Him, the Father, who put all things under Him, under the Son. So actually, giving the Kingdom, delivering the Kingdom to the Father means everything will be subject to the Father, including the Son. So, when all the will of the Son is done, the Son will give the kingdom to the Father. And the Son himself submit to the Father, because the Father is the source of divinity. Means, the Son is begotten from the Father, not the Father from the Son. That's why the Son will submit to the Father, and some church father said, means the church, the blood of Christ, will submit to the Father. That God may be all in all. That God may be all, the first all is the Holy Trinity. In all, He is the Lord over all things. So all in all means the common Lordship of the Trinity over all things. Why is St. Paul concluded by this? Let somebody understand St. Paul when he said the Son will submit, then there is inferiority here. Or the Son is not as divine as the Father. That's why in order to affirm that this submission doesn't mean the Son is less than the Father, that's why he said that, that God may be all in all. The first all of the Holy Trinity, second all of everything. So the Holy Trinity has lordship, 
has dominion, has authority, power over all things. So that's and Paul actually explained how the closing events will happen and uh, how the last enemy which is which death will be destroyed. Continuing his argument about denying the resurrection of the dead, there are some implications if we do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. He explained this from verse 29 to verse 33. And actually verse 29 is one of the most difficult verses of the Bible. One of the most difficult verses. He says, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? It's clear that St. Paul is speaking about a certain custom or a certain practice that people who believe in resurrection they start to be baptized on behalf of their relatives who died before converting to Christianity. So St. Paul is saying, if there is no resurrection, then tell me why they baptize for the dead. If there is no if the dead do not rise, then why they baptize on behalf of the dead? And that's why I'm saying this is a very difficult verse to explain. When St. Paul used this, does he mean that the practice of baptism for the dead is correct or not? Actually, the Mormon, until now, the followers, the Mormons are the followers of Joseph Smith. They baptize for the dead. The Mormon, they use this verse and they baptize for the dead. And that's why sometimes their membership, for example, if they are baptized today for 500 persons who die, they add them to their membership. And that's why their numbers grow because they add all the dead uh, for whom they were baptized to their membership. I want to share with you three interpretations for these verses. And I will tell you which verse, which interpretation is the most acceptable in the church. The first interpretation says this custom did not exist at the time of St. Paul. Because if the custom existed during the time of St. Paul, St. Paul would have rebuked it. But because of this verse, then actually, the, the, the abuse of, from interpretation of this verse, uh, many people start to be baptized for the dead. But he says baptized for the dead means to accept to die with Christ in the water of baptism. That means to be baptized for the dead, means to die with Christ. But this argument is very weak. And this interpretation is not strong because the verse is clear. Why, if the dead did not rise, why did it baptize for the dead? So it means why did it baptize on behalf of the dead? That's one interpretation. 
Mother had the petition. They say, many people when they saw the martyrs die for Christ, then they accept Christianity and they become baptized. For example, during the martyrdom of St. Stephen, many people said, why St. Stephen accept to die? This means there is better life. If there is no better life, then actually St. Stephen wouldn't accept to die from Christ. So many people believed in Christianity and became baptized. And this uh, interpretation is accepted. But again, the verse, it says, why be baptized for the dead? It, 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 it doesn't say why I accept to be baptized when I see somebody die for Christ. So here is the most acceptable interpretation of this verse. St. Paul is speaking about the inconsistency of those who deny the resurrection while at the same time practicing a form of baptism for the dead. Apparently these false teachers were preaching to be baptized for the dead. So St. Paul here, he is making this argument. If you don't believe for the resurrection of the dead, why don't you preach baptism? You preach to be baptized for the dead. If the dead will not rise, why you preach to baptize on behalf of the dead? And notice when St. Paul referred to them, he said they, the third person. He did not say, use the word we or us. For example, he didn't say, what will we do who are baptized for the dead? He said the word they. They, when he used the word they, he's referring to false teachers. Because if he's referring to the apostles or to the true teachers, he would use the word we, not they. So I think St. Paul said, otherwise, what will the false teachers do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead did not rise at all, why the false teacher are baptized for the dead, or preach for the dead? Then there's inconsistency between your teaching and of baptism for the dead and the no resurrection of the dead. So St. Paul, using the practice of other to demonstrate the inconsistency of such a practice when denying the resurrection of the dead. But he is not affirming this as a legitimate right. He's not saying we need to be baptized for the dead. If you want to say this, he would use the word we from the word dead. So he's just referring to a practice, but he's not affirming this practice as a legitimate right. Very And why do we stand in Jupiter? See here, he used the word we, not they. In verse 29, because he doesn't believe in baptism for the dead, he used the word they. But in verse 30, he used the word we. And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Means what? He says, what motive if there is no hope beyond? If there is no resurrection for the dead, then what motive can we, the apostles, have for placing ourselves in constant peril by preaching the resurrection. You know how I am, I was put in prison. 
how I was uh, tortured, how, how we were beaten because of the, the resurrection of Christ. Actually, they, they called the apostles and they tortured them because of each resurrection. So, what, why you have to endure all of this? Why you stand in jeopardy every hour? If there is no resurrection, if there is no hope after we die, Verse 31, I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die in thee. So St. Paul is saying, actually, I am exposed to this being. I affirm that I am daily in daily peril of death. I am daily exposed to death. But don't, don't get me wrong. I am not complaining. Actually, it is honor. I am boasting. It is honor for me to die for the Lord. And this boasting also is in you, in Christ Jesus, to die for Christ. As Christians, we boast, we take glory. It's honor for us to suffer for Christ. So I'm not complaining. But when I say I will die daily, I am boasting in uh, Christ Jesus our Lord. And this boasting is also in me. Uh, verse 32. In the manner of men, so now he's saying, humanly speaking, I'm speaking as human. In the manner of men, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus. This is just analogy metaphor. Uh, he, he, was, he wanted to say, I have encountered furious opposition. Uh, so people who opposed me, we're like beasts, we're like harsh beasts, wild beasts in Ephesus. Uh, so this is not literally. I have put wild beasts in Ephesus. This is not a literal. This is where was the false teaching. What advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink for tomorrow without. So all my suffering, uh, to no purpose if the dead will not rise. All this suffering has no goal if the dead will not rise. Then actually, if there is no resurrection of the dead, let us use the Epicurean uh, saying, let us eat and drink for we will die tomorrow. Let us enjoy our life here on earth, because when we die, there is no after death, there is no eternal life. So he was saying, if you believe in the no resurrection, this will lead you to sensuality, to try to be immersed in pleasures of the world, to live actually as a man of flesh, to be indulged with sensuality. That's why he said, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. This teaching of no resurrection is deceiving you. Do not be deceived. Do not hang around the false teachers because evil company corrupt good habits. If you hang around these false teachers, they will play with your mind. Then you will attack false doctrine. And this will actually affect your behavior, your habit, your uh, performance. So such error uh, will affect your spiritual life. So if you don't live in resurrection, 
you will end up eating and drinking and thus all this sensuality. Shake it off, do not sin. Do not sin. Verse 74. Awake righteousness and do not sin. Be alert. Awake to the false, be alert to the false uh, teaching and shake it off. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. Because if you believe in this false teaching, you need to sin. You will sin actually. If you believe in this false teaching, you will sin. Uh, awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So he said, such error, this false teaching that there is no resurrection, can only spring of ignorance of God. If they knew God, if they experienced God, they wouldn't say there is no resurrection. But because of their ignorance of God and His power to raise men, that's why we preach there is no resurrection. And I speak this to shame means if you believe in there is no resurrection, you need to be ashamed. Because your faith is in vain, you are still in your sins, you are not saved. And this, not only that, but this teaching will make you live in sinful life and in sexuality. In order actually to cover all the questions about resurrection, There are two difficulties or two questions are raised. The first question, how are the dead raised up? How they will be raised? Second question, what kind of body do they have? That's why in verse 35 he said, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Are we going to be risen with the same body or not? And how we will be risen after we die? How we will be risen? Especially after we die, our body decay and turn into dust. So how will we be risen again? Verse 36. Foolish one. Why is the Paul start by saying foolish one? He's not cursing here, but he is saying if you look at the nature, you will find the answer. So foolish means here slow understanding. Why cannot you learn the lesson from the nature, nature around you? That's why you will answer this question from the nature. He said, foolish one, what you saw is not made alive unless it does. So if you are speaking how the dead will be raised, Actually, the nature teaches you that the sea has to be dark, has to die, and to be buried in order to be alive and to become a tree of fruit. So the grain that you sow has to die first and be dissolved like our body decay, and to be dissolved before it comes forth in a new life. That's how. So God, who gave this, the power to this sea, to die, to be sold, and to rise again, he is the same God who will give us the power after we die, decay, become dust, to rise again. 
verse uh, 37. And what you saw, you do not saw the body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. When you saw, if you want actually to plant apple, you don't saw the apple itself. You don't saw the fruit to become, but actually you saw mere grain. So he's saying the grain that you saw, uh, the body. So we saw not the plant that comes forth, but only a base. You, you saw only a seed. So St. Paul is trying to say what? This is the seed. This body is the seed. But the, body, the glorious one of resurrection is the real one. Like this is the seed of the apple. But the true apple is the real apple. So this one is like the seed. But the glorious body is the true part. Verse 38. But God gives it a body as he pleases. This seed of the apple is dark, but the apple is red. This seed actually be tested, it's bitter, but the apple is sweet. This seed is small, but the apple is big. So what what is saying here? God will give it a body. So this body, the apple, all the components were taken from the seed, but it looks totally different than the seed. Why? This body of the apple is very suitable to the nature, to the atmosphere. And this seed is very suitable to the soil. That's what he's saying here. So the seed to, to the to the seed planted, God gives a new body. To this seed, God gives a new body. The stalk of wheat or corn or whatever it may be. So the new body, like the apple, there is no outward resemblance to the seed planted. This doesn't look like that. The apple does not look like the seed. Although this apple from the seed. So it's trying to say that the body of resurrection, the glorious body of resurrection, will not look like the physical body that we have now. Verse 58. But God gives it the body as he pleases. And this body according to God's wisdom, according to God's pleasure, and to each seed its own body. To each seed, the body of the apple is different than the body of the banana, is different than the body of watermelon. To each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh. So he's saying all bodies are not the same. The body of resurrection will be different than the physical body that we have now. Although the components are taken from this body, but it's different. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, another of birds. So he's saying all the different animals have bodies unlike, different bodies, but suited to their conditions. So that gives the fish body suitable to its condition. That gives the birds body suitable to its condition. That gives men body suitable to its condition. God will give us glorious body suitable to the condition in heaven. Verse 4. 
There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. So he's saying, uh, even there are heavenly bodies, and like the stars, the planets, uh, and the, the earthly bodies, they, they don't look like each other, not in form and not in glory. Now St. Paul is taking us to another point, the glory. Because this body will be different from the glorious body, not only in the form, but also in the glory. So as the sun has glory, and the, the earthly body has different glory, that's why, you know, our bodies in heaven will be different in glory than our earthly bodies. Verse uh, 14, there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. The sun has its own peculiar form and glory. The moon has its own peculiar form and, and glory. The, the stars has also its uh, peculiar form and glory. In heaven, the martyrs will have their own glory, the righteous will have their own glory, the, the uh, pastors will have their own glory. So each body will have its own glory. So the thought here, what's the Buddhist right to say here? That to every condition, there is a form, a body, a glory given suitable to that condition. So for every condition, there is a body and glory suitable to this condition. This uh, 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption and it is raised in incorruption. Now St. Paul will get the differences between the physical body and the glorious body. This body is corrupted body. Why? We get sick, we get tired, and after we die, we decay. But this body will be raised in, in, in corruption. The new body in heaven will never decay, will not get sick, will not get tired. It will be incorruptible body. Verse 43. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. This body has no honor here. That the body is repulsive. And when we die, actually, it became offensive. People want just to, to bury it away of self because it offended the people. So there is no glory for the dead body. But when we are raised, we are raised with glorious beauty will have, like, you know, when Elijah and uh, Moses appeared with the Lord Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, they appeared in glory. In order for God to teach us that in the resurrection will be raised also in glory. That's why we put in follow uh, around the scenes to indicate that he will be risen in glory. It is so, the body is so, it is so in weakness. It is raised in power. The third point he mentioned here that 
actually, the, the more we get uh, aged, our power becomes weaker and weaker and weaker until we buy all the power that's possible. But actually, when we are risen, we will be risen with heavenly energy, will be power. There's uh, 44. It is so natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is natural body and there is a spiritual body. Natural body means fleshy body, is animal body. We need to eat. Physiological need, we need to sleep. Uh, all this physiological need, that's a natural body. Body is suitable to the nature of the earth. But spiritual body, body whose life principle is a spirit. In heaven, we will not need to eat or drink or to sleep. All these physiological needs we will not need in heaven. That's why this body is natural, but in the resurrection, the body will be spiritual, glorious body. Verse uh, 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving uh, we cannot comprehend the nature of the body, the spiritual body of resurrection. But we know it is not a body of flesh, bone, or blood. It is a spiritual body. Adam, the first man who was made a living soul, God took dust, made the body, breathed in this body, the spirit, the human spirit, then actually Adam became a living soul. And from him came our natural life. Because Adam was taken from the earth, that's why his body, which we get from Adam, is also physical, natural body. But the body that we will receive from Christ is a spiritual body because Christ is from heaven. He's a life-giving spirit. Life-giving spirit, but uh, the last Adam, Christ, of whom Adam was a type, the first Adam was a symbol for Christ, that he became a living, a life-giving spirit because he gave life to the dead. He imparted spiritual existence to the dead and to be present as a spiritual being. So, the first Adam, the first Adam, uh, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And after all, the spiritual. He is trying to say, Adam, the, the, the natural came first. Then Christ, the spiritual, came after. In the same way, we will have the physical body first, then we will have the spiritual body later on in everything that is mentioned. Because the first Adam came before the second Adam, the natural body, which proceeds from the first Adam, is our tabernacle now, our tent now. And after this life comes the spiritual body, which the second Adam gives. Verse 47, the first man was of the earth, taken from the dust, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. So, uh, the 
The first man was made out of earth, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And all have earthly bodies like that of Adam. All of us have earthly bodies like that of Adam. But after this life comes a spiritual body, which is the second Adam here. When we are raised to heaven, we will have a spiritual body like Christ. Like Christ rose by the spiritual body from heaven. Verse 48. And as was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. So, as Adam is made of dust, all of us, we are taken from uh, the flesh, uh, from the dust, natural ones. And as Christ actually came from heaven, so will we be heaven. Verse 49, and as we have borne the image of the man of dust, now we have the image of Adam, the first Adam, the first man, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man, Christ, when we go to heaven, then actually we will be raised by the spirit of his glory, and we have body like the body of the risen Christ. The last part, from verse 50 to 58, our final picture. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit the corruption. So he's saying, this flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Why will not be raised with the same body? Well, this is corrupted. But, so can a corrupted body inherit the corruption in us? This is, in heaven, there is no corruption. But this body is corrupted. So this cannot inherit this. So, if our body is made of flesh and blood, corrupt body, then it's not suitable for this body to go to eternal life. Now there's another question. But if Christ comes right now, all of us are alive with no God, what will happen to us? Then what we did not die, we said we need to die and to decay to the soul in order to be raised. But now we're still alive. That's why in verse 51 I told you, I will take a seat. Behold, I will take you a mystery. Mystery means a seat. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So he said, I disclose to you a secret of which you have had no knowledge. What is the secret? That some of us will not die. Some of us shall be alive when Christ comes. So these people, the living who meet Christ, as well as the dead, will be raised up. But how this will happen? Then those who are alive will be changed into the bodies of resurrection. So all shall be made immortal and incorruptible. How actually this change will happen in twinkle of an eye, in a moment, in a stantinous, at the last drop. And this is actually the order of events. Number one, the dead will be risen. Number two, the alive will be changed. He told us, verse 52, in a moment, twinkle of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will raise incorruptible, 
and we who remain alive shall be changed. So after the last trumpet, after the trumpet, the shall sound, which is the signal for the close of all earthly things and events, the corruptible body must give grace to the corrupt. So the dead will be risen, and those who are remain alive, they will die and risen instantly. They will die and rise instantly, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. For this corruptible body, as he said in verse uh, 53, for this corruptible must put on in corruption, and this mortal must put on in mortality. Why must? Because heaven there is no corruption, heaven there is no death. That's why this body, the corrupted body, must put in corruption, this mortal body must put on in immortality. So this corruptible body must give place to a corruptible body, and this mortal frame give place to a mortal frame, because in heaven there is no death and there is no corruption. So actually, we need to put off one and to put on another. We need to put off the physical body and to put on the glorious body of resurrection. Verse 54. So when this corruptible has put on in corruption, and this mortal has put on in mortality, then shall be brought to pass the same demonstrated death is swallowed up in victory. Then actually, the prophecy of Isaiah, when the family of skin will be fulfilled, death swallowed up in victory. That's the final victory. Suppose Satan said to us, the last enemy is death. So when death is swallowed up in victory, that is the final victory. Final victory over death. And Isaiah prophesied about this when he, uh, in chapter 25, verse 8. Verse 55, St. Paul's reading was written in Mosiah, chapter 13, verse 14. All this, where is the state? All this, where is the victory? So, St. Paul is singing the victorious song of uh, victory, of, of resurrection. Uh, by faith, he saw the victory of Christ over death. He saw the final victory of our death and Hades. That's why he said, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? After Hades opened his mouth and swallowed millions and billions of people, now Hades will be destroyed in the eternal fire. And after this, killed everyone, now everyone is risen. So, where is the state of death and where is the victory of Hades? Then St. Paul said, the state of death is said, wow. As if death is like an animal has a sting, and use this sting in order actually to kill the people and kill them. This sting is the, the sin, because after we are pierced by sin, then the wages of sin is death. So it is sin that gives the death his power to stick and destroy, to pierce and to destroy. And the strength of sin, of sin is the law. Why the strength of sin is the law? Because without sin, without law, sin is not perceived. If I, took, if I, if I didn't take it, don't remove this from here. 
then there is no law, there is no sense. But if I took a law, don't remove it from here. Now you did not obey the law, then actually you are in contempt with the law. So he said that the power or the strength of sin is the law, because without the law, sin is not perceived or viewed. The law makes sin more grievous by making God's will is clearer to me. Maybe before I say I do not know, but now the law makes sin is very, very clear. So now the strength of sin, the strength of sin is the law. But now we have the grace of God with us. And by the grace of God, we can keep the law. Verse 57, that's a song of victory. Thanks be to God, but thanks be to God. Forgive us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God, forgive us victory over sin. And although the strength of sin by law, but through the grace that we receive through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, now has victory over sin and death. So, he said, the implication of no resurrection to be living in sensuality. Let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we will die. But if you believe in resurrection, what's the implication here? Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the world of the Lord. If you don't understand this resurrection, then you need to be firm in your faith as Iraq devoted to Christian life, abounding in every good work, for your faith is not in vain. Know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord because of the resurrection. All what you do when you accept suffering, when you carry your cross, all this labor is not in vain because Jesus Christ is the resurrection and life. He rose from the dead and also will be risen. So the hope of mortality has to shoot foundation, and because of this, we labor and toil and abound in every good work. Glory to God, for the world, and the God.